We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. A typhoon of terror. You know, that goes on in many, many different ways. A lot of terror happens behind closed doors. People who are uh, abused and in situations where someone with superior power has uh, exercises domination and control. And sometimes a lot of terror is involved. And of course, taking on the established powerful system is never an easy task. But every now and then, it pays off. Injustice, such as terror behind closed doors, behind the walls of private institutions, uh, injustice can sometimes uh, result in justice once it is made public. The case of the Horace Mann School is a very interesting case study and lesson for all who work for justice. For more than 30 years, at least 22 Horace Mann teachers abused more than 64 students. Our guest today, I'm very pleased to have with us, Amos Camille, made headlines when he broke three decades of silence surrounding the sexual abuse of students at one of the nation's top prep schools. In his new book, Great is the Truth, Camille explores why the school he loved has refused to look into its shocking, very disturbing past. Thanks so much for being with us. Amos Camille. Thanks for having me. Amos Camille is a playwright, screenwriter, and investigative reporter. His 2012 cover story in the New York Times Magazine brought the Horace Mann scandal to light. Your article in 2012 revealed shocking facts about what uh, was going on at the school. It must have been quite a process. Why did it take you so long after you found out about the abuse to propose the Times story? Talk about that, if you would, please. Sure. Um, I, well, I, as a, you mentioned, I was a graduate of the Horace Mann School, and about uh, ten years after I graduated, five of us went. Uh, we went uh, on a camping trip out in the Sierra Nevadas, and it was at that point we were about twenty-seven years old when one of uh, the fellows, I call him Andrew in the book, uh, told us that he had been abused by a football teacher. And then what happened after that was really what shocked a lot of people. Uh, Five of us uh, uh, went around that night telling stories, and three of the five of us had been abused. I was not. I had told a quote-unquote funny story about going drinking with my headmaster and his supposed boyfriend, which, you know, in light of what we now know is not so funny. But um, we all went on with our lives. We had families, and it was a private matter. It was right after uh, the Sandusky case hit at Penn State 
that I called my friend Andrew. Uh, now this is about 20 years later. And uh, I said, uh, how are you doing? And it was also a football coach that had abused him. And he said, I'm not doing too well. I just wish somebody would write about it. And that's what launched what ultimately became Prep School Predators, uh, the cover story of the Times Magazine. Yes, and it uh, certainly uh, shook things up. Now, 2012 was 10 years after the Catholic Church scandal uh, bro- broke. Uh, I-, I wonder... You know, if that related to your bringing this uh, to the uh, to the public's attention. Yeah, it did. You know, I think one of the things that all of these um, scandals, when they go, when they're on such a wide scale, like the Catholic Church, uh, the uh, and Horace Mann, was a lot of the victims they labor under the notion that they're alone, right? It, it's sort of um, it's part of the predator's con game. You know, it's just sure. you that kind of a thing. And so on some level, I think I bought into that, uh, that it was just a couple of isolated incidents, my friend, and he got away, and hadn't really put the pieces together, right? Sort of pre-Boston uh, Archdiocese, pre-Penn State, we weren't really thinking in terms of the scale that we now know. And as you mentioned in your opening, we were up to 22 teachers that have abused dozens of kids. We know of uh, 32, 64 incidents. But we know there's a lot more people out there. So to answer the question, I think it just wasn't, it was sort of a, huh, an isolated incident happened to Andrew and a couple of weird things happened to a couple of other of my friends. But we did not know that it went all the way back to 1962 and carried on until 1996. And what was your reason? So that was 2012 when you first uh, really blew the whistle on it. What's the reason for uh, putting the book out just now? the one uh, which is called uh, Great is the Truth. So Great is the Truth is the motto of the Horace Mann School. And oh my goodness. what happened after the oh. article was, was pretty uh, incredible. Uh, on the Times uh, comments page, they got thousands of comments. Uh, they had to shut down the comments page. Uh, they were getting so many accusations. People were coming forward. It happened, uh, not only Horace Mann people, but it happened in my school. They were getting... They were getting inundated from reports of sexual abuse from all over the world. Uh, and once I saw that, uh, right, so in the original piece I talked about uh, three predators. Uh-huh. Uh, what happened, mostly because of Facebook, there were a couple of groups that started. Mm. Uh, one called Processing Horace Mann, which was open only to those of us who went to the school to really process what we had all been through. And through mostly that medium and the fact that a lot of survivors uh, got together, there was 2,500 people on that, um, on that private group. And, wow. Uh, and wow. through that, I realized, we all realized, we had lived through something that we sort of knew in our bones was going on, but it, uh, it remained so hidden that I, I realized I, I had to write uh, the second part of it. And what, we, what the book traces is not only the jump from 3 to 22 credible uh, accusations against predators, but it also highlights the quest for justice that the survivors went through. And in the state of New York, has one of the most draconian statute of limitations laws in the country. It shares that distinction with uh, Mississippi and Alabama where you have until the age of 23 to come forward uh, if you've been sexually abused. 
Now, most people don't speak about the abuse that they've, that they've experienced, if at all, until their 40s or 50s. The average age is actually 42. And usually it's around the same time you have a kid uh, that's around the age that you were uh, when you were abused. So the, um, it was really uh, sort of uh, understanding how unfair and how tilted against the victims this was to ask a 23-year-old to make sense of this act and then to go up against not only their accuser but the institution, which in many cases covered up the act and did not report it to the police. Uh, I realized that uh, I realized that, uh, as many people have been calling it, the statute of limitations on child abuse cases needed to be changed, and uh, that that's really what drove me. And also, once once I heard the stories of my friends, remember I knew many of the teachers, I knew many of the the students, uh, the victims, and so once I heard their stories, I, I was compelled to to tell more. Wow, it's it's quite quite a story here, and it goes beyond the Horace Mann School in general. We're going to be talking about that and the whole dynamic and 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 structure that enables this to happen. If you just tuned in, keeping democracy alive, Bert Cohen here, your host, and Amos Camille, talking about his uh, brand new book, "Great Is the Truth: Secrecy Scandal and the Quest for Justice." at the Horace Mann School. When you first got to Horace Mann, a friend told you there were certain teachers you should avoid, just certain ones, since everyone knew they were pervs to be avoided. Why, why didn't anyone ever do anything about it? Tell us about the cult of personality that shielded the teachers from such accusations. Right. So the, um, I came into Horace Mann, and as you mentioned, uh, Horace Mann really caters to the 1%. Uh, actually, today, the one percent of the one percent—it's uh, you know the hedge fund uh, kids, uh, you know the uh, people who run media empires, really, really wealthy people send their kids to Horace Mann. I was a middle-class kid. Uh, I happened to be a good baseball player when I was growing up, and I got a scholarship to go to Horace Mann. So I was sort of given the keys to the kingdom. And uh, pretty early on, I met uh, a friend of mine. I'm still friends with him to this day, and he said. Uh, you know, avoid uh, you should avoid those teachers. And I, I said, I remember saying something along the lines of, "What, like they're hard graders?" And I was in tenth grade. He said, "No, they're pervs. Stay away from them." And I remember uh, him pointing out teachers, and there was this general sense that fifteen-year-olds talk about, uh, and, and this goes on today. You know, this one is to be avoided. Don't get into a car with that one. You know, this one likes girls. That one likes boys. And it was almost this open secret. Uh, among the students that, uh, you know, in, in the nomenclature of a 15-year-old was along the lines of, you know, it's, they're, they're weird, stay away from them. What we didn't realize was uh, what was going on uh, behind closed doors, right? So se- sexual abuse is an act that uh, it's written in invisible ink, if you will. It's a very hard thing to prove, right? So yeah. if you, if you uh, take a kid into a private music uh, room and the doors are closed, Maybe it's just music, uh, and it's a very difficult thing. And the cult of personality, we, um, it's one of the things that made this school so great, right? You'd be going to Europe with these uh, incredibly uh, gifted and, and recognized uh, composers, and um, that any parent, what parent wouldn't want that, uh, to learn uh, about the classics you know, in art from, by, by traveling to Italy with uh, experts? Sure. But it also gave them cover at yes. the same time. 
Wow. So that that's quite a difficult situation to be in because, you know, the, the Horace Mann School was a highly respected school, and it seemed likely that uh, if you made it through Horace Mann, you'd get into one of the Ivy League schools, uh, followed by uh, lucrative careers. So uh, that, that, that it makes a very, very difficult situation. And I wonder right. if you—go ahead. No, no, you put your finger on something right there. I think one of the, uh, the, the places or the, the, uh, where, where sexual abuse can thrive is when a, a student has something to lose. So in the case of Horace Mann, it was, as you mentioned, this dangling in front of you of uh, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, right? Uh, they call it HIP in uh, Horace Mann terms, right? Uh, to get into the uh, lucrative IV careers, and that's what you do. And so a, uh, a teacher has that over a student. So, well, you wouldn't want to spoil your chances. You know, and if you look at uh, any person who's grooming somebody uh, to sexually abuse them, there's usually something they can lose, right? So in the Catholic Church, uh, you know, there, there, there's a whole stru- community structure, the same in the Orthodox Jewish community, the Boy Scouts. A kid's got something to lose by being kicked out of the, uh, the club, in a sense. And, and depending on what the club is, that's the tool that the, uh, that the perpetrator will use to help seal in the silence. Power and control, absolutely amazing. And power and control, you know, it's just so deep in our culture and keeping people quiet that uh, so abuse can can happen. How is it that, as I understand, these there hasn't there haven't been any prosecutions? Why is that? Why have they never been tried for this stuff? So what I mentioned before was the uh, the statute of limitations in New York. Oh, you're right. Uh, you're that's right. a real. Not only is it a, a an arcane you know, slash Neanderthal law, mm-hmm. uh, but because it just doesn't take into consideration human development, right, and, and, and the fact that somebody's not going to talk about this until their forties. Mm. But it actually gives institutions a playbook to avoid responsibility, uh-huh. right? So uh, a kid comes to you. Uh, in the state of New York. He said, uh, this is happening with uh, Teacher X. And then it's pretty easy at this point for an administrator to say, well, you know, uh, we haven't heard about this before, so just, you know, let's keep it between us. Right. And the kid goes on with their life. They graduate from the school or they leave the camp or what have you. And then by the time they've had enough therapy or their life has fallen apart because of alcohol or drugs or overeating they're 40, and they come back and say, oh, sorry, we're, you know, that was a different school. That happened so many years ago, and yeah, uh, yeah. you're out of luck. And the Bronx DA, actually, in, in, in the wake of the article, that, yeah. yeah, they actually opened up a hotline, and they found that it was much worse than what I had originally reported. And they were only looking for cases that they could prosecute. But since the statute of limitations is only 23, that amounted to zero. So the forces that are trying to keep that in place within the state of New York are pretty powerful. You have a very strong Catholic uh, 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 lobby, essentially, that wants to keep uh, keep the, the law as it is. There's, there's a bill in New York called the Markey Bill. Right. And Markey uh, wants yeah. to raise the, uh, the age to 28, 
and wants to provide a one-year window where anyone can go back and accuse, uh, make a claim against their abuser. And that's what the Catholic Church is fighting, mostly, that one-year window, because they, they've estimated that it would cost them millions of dollars. Well, maybe they should have thought about that at the time. <laughs> I tend to agree with you. Right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's right. And, and look, I, I believe it's a matter of time. I don't think that the... Uh, but um, I think there's also a call right now and, and some rumblings of having a federal commission. When this happened in Australia, similar uh, scandals mm-hmm. around that country, mm-hmm. the Australians set up a royal commission with subpoena power that could go in and say, okay, who did the reporting, what happened, uh, and prosecute. And, and, and I think there's going to be... There, I know that there's a movement, a growing movement uh, towards that right now uh, at the federal level. And I'm sure, as, as you mentioned, the, uh, you know, dangling the uh, enticements ahead, you know, to keep quiet so that you can further your career, get into a better school. You know, I'm thinking about abuse cases, you know, in domestic violence situations where it's usually the women who they don't want to press charges because they're afraid of what the person who was in control and who was dominating, what that person might do to the victim. And I, I can't help but think that the, the feeling, anyway, must be somewhat uh, related to that. I mean, all these domination and control abuse situations, it's, it's hard to— uh, and I can imagine how you can think originally— Oh, it's just one bad apple. Just one bad apple. This right. is this is not pervasive. Is it possible that the adults at the Horace Mann School really did not know anything of what was going on? Is it possible? That's a really uh, great question, Bert. It's also it's just something that sort of kept me up at night over these past few years. Okay. And I went into this assuming that everybody knew, all the teachers knew. Hmm. Over the last four years, I've had to soften my... my um, my hard line on that. It wasn't necessarily that uh, everyone knew. That there was different levels of knowing. There were, uh, on the deepest uh, extreme, there were people who covered it up. Absolutely. You know, administrators who both uh, children and other teachers went to and said, this is happening to so-and-so, and they were told to go away, keep their mouths shut. On the other end of the spectrum, there were teachers who... Um, just they were not in the right loop. They were 24 years old, right out of college. They're, right. they're in a, they, were, uh, they weren't going to the parties. They were just sort of doing their thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they sort of heard the same rumors that we did. But at you know, 24, you're not going to exactly you know, sort of uh, accuse a 50-year-old administrator or teacher of something that you don't really know. So there were those types of teachers. The hardest ones for me, and, yeah. and one of, uh, I deal with it in the book, yes. were people... I have relationships to until this day, uh, my heroes. They were non-abusing teachers, and uh, uh, I actually uh, had a conversation with one of them. I said, where are you? Where were you? And uh, here's, a, here's a guy that I feel terrible about. I mean, here he is. He thought he had a 35-year amazing career as a teacher and educator. Many of the kids that he know were harmed. But he said, I, I just, you know, I didn't, it wasn't on my radar and and." and I tried to, um, you know, I did my own thing, right. and I should have known. I didn't know. Maybe I, maybe I should have pursued harder. So it's, it's some, it, you know, depending on the person. They said there's definitely the pure evil, 
people who covered it up. Yeah. People who were pretty innocent. And people who were somewhere in the middle, the sort of bystanders who said, you know, I don't know if I want to rock this boat. Do I want to know too much? Um, and, and that's, you know, it's a hard thing to pass judgment uh, on, on those folks. Um, I'd like to think if I was in that position, I would act differently. But um, one would think you do. And, you know, I mean, it, child abuse, to me anyway, is, is one of the worst crimes there is, because it just go, goes on forever. And, and, and you write, quote, there was a part of me that felt guilty about opening a Pandora's box. Talk about that, please. Yeah, it was, um, you know, at some point when the uh, survivors were not, they were getting stonewalled by, by the school, and they entered into this brutal mediation process with the school, and the school, because it's uh, powerful and rich, and they saw that they had a major potential liability on their hands. They, they approached the mediation process, not from a healing-centered point of view, but more like a mergers and acquisition uh, negotiations, yeah. right? And, and, and um, this is what these guys do for a living. They buy and sell companies, and they played hardball. So on one, at some point during this, I said, what, what good has all of this done? Now, I've since changed, but I, I, I think mm. that talking about it, airing it out, people coming to the table, while it's not a perfect solution, and Horace Mann has in no way uh, acted the way that we wanted them to or we thought that they might, given mm. that uh, great is the truth is the motto of the school that we grew up on. Yeah, really. uh, I do feel that, um, and I get, uh, I, I get letters and emails from survivors, you know, pretty much every day at this point, thanking me, and mm. not just from Horace Mann, but beyond, because on some right. level, once you do talk about it, it lessens the power over it, right? At the end of the day, we know two things. We, want, we know survivors want to have what happened to them acknowledged, and somebody from the institution to say sorry, right? That's, that's in, in the preponderance of cases, that's what they want. Mm-hmm. And maybe, uh, at least it was acknowledged, maybe they didn't get the uh, sorry they wanted from Horace Mann. Certainly they didn't get the monetary apology that they were expecting. But on some level, people are saying, okay, this happened, I can move on with my life to a certain extent. But, right, uh, right. Yeah, in, in the legal world, the idea is to be made whole, to be made whole. How can one be made whole after this? Especially, I can imagine... The, the the predictable reaction is, ooh, this was just me, you know, and I I, I I can imagine internalizing it, and you know just just blaming yourself for it, and to live with that that's that's further victimization, but to to be made whole I would think it requires something that you were talking about saying you know that that Horace Mann and the teachers recognize their responsibility and lift the burden off of these victims rather than have it go on decade after decade after decade. Yeah, it's a tremendous uh, pain that many of these people are living through, and it's only furthered by a a very difficult mediation process. I think, you know, in some ways, assigning a number to that kind of suffering is kind of a crazy endeavor in and of itself, right? So, you know, uh, during the mediation process, uh, one of the mediators opened up uh, and he and he said, "How much w- could I pay you to let me abuse your child?" <laughs> right? And he, he he was making a point. He said, "Look, this uh, is uh, yeah. you're not going to get what you think you deserve, and there's nothing that can do undo 
decades of damage. But we will try to get to some number here. Um, but it's not gonna it's not gonna be what the number you think, and, it's, and once you even if it is the number you think, it's not gonna solve many of the other problems. So then it it opens up the question: is what is what does justice look like? Yes, really. And I deal with that in the book a little bit about what other how do you heal not only the survivors, those of us like me who were there and and knew on some level, or the boyfriends or the girlfriends or the non-abusing teachers or the current parents, you know, or the current students there. They didn't do anything. How, did, how does a community get together? And So there, there have been attempts, I'm sure. right, the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in South Africa being yes. the most famous, to try to air out these, you know, to have a series of sustained dialogues about it, but we're not even close to that in the Horace Mann case. So, Horace Mann, is, is, they're still in business, right? What is the status of the school? Flourishing. The um, Forbes magazine uh, calls Horace Mann one of the top ten uh, in the country uh, year after year. Didn't seem to hit a bump in the road after this uh, story broke. Makes me question the criteria that Forbes uses, but <laughs> that's another issue. Mm. Um, but uh, no, they, they they will say that attendance is up, that um, uh, contributions to the school are up which is true on, on the face uh, of it, but fewer people are giving more money. Many uh-huh. of the alumni, uh-huh. many, many of the alumni are, uh, hmm. quite frankly, disgusted, not just the people who are abused, but the people like me, like, uh, like-minded people, just said, you know, this is, this is not what I thought uh, our school was and what we stood for, and um, it's not like the current kids are not seeing how this is playing out. They're getting an education. Mm. <laughs> yeah, more of an education than was intended, I'm sure. And to take on that that veneer, I mean, as with virtually everything, it's sadly all about money, at, at least for them. I mean, that recent uh, situation out in Missouri, uh, when there was a uh, student on hunger strike, didn't mean anything. But when the football team uh, said they would cut out the games, that would mean a lot less money for the school. And so only then <laughs> did they do right. something about the, the dis- leverage point. <laughs> money. I know. Right. As Bob Dylan said, money doesn't talk, it swears. Now, right. you were you were friends with, with your swim coach, Stan Cops. You, you had liked him very much. How did you feel when you learned the extent of his abusive behaviors? Yes, Dan was one of these, uh, we could call him the bear. He was one of these um, characters on campus that everybody loved to tell stories about. He was a quiet, uh, sort of um, awkward guy. Um, but he was, uh, you know, always talk about, people would rub, would give these weird massages on the swim team, but he was pretty harmless, or so we thought. Uh, he was... Um, uh, I did not have him as a teacher. I had him as a coach. Right. His supposed boyfriend, certainly they were they were very close, was the guy who recruited me to the school, a guy by the name of Inky Clark. Now, Inky Clark, if you look up him, uh, if you Google Inky, he's a reformer, uh, an educational reformer of historic proportions. He actually turned Yale University uh, into a real meritocracy. Right. He, let, he started uh, under his guise. He would no longer... Uh, let people in just because of their family names, but you know by their um, by their grades and uh, wow, what so, a concept! <laughs> yeah, and so uh, uh, he ushered into Yale 
uh, a new era of, and many blacks and Jews and minorities you know went to Yale after Inky. so he was he was a historical figure. He was recruited to Harsman. He started there in 1970. He was a dynamic guy, a wonderful man. And uh, he saw me playing baseball uh, in the Bronx and uh, recruited me to go to Harsman and was my coach. When I found out what happened, uh, as I mentioned before, I'd had a quote-unquote funny drinking story right. from my brother and my friend, uh, I call Paul in the book, we went uh, for a bunch of uh, drinks at the headmaster's house, and they went out for steaks and more drinks, and I was 16 or 17. And um, the night ended, you know, fine. We just left. My friend Paul had a car, and we swerved away. Hmm. But uh, after the article broke, we found out that uh, a very similarly structured evening by a fellow by the name of John Seiger uh, didn't end so well, and uh, ended with uh, both Inky and cops uh, having sex, uh, raping him uh, through the night. Mm. And well, one of the chilling things about that story uh, was when when John Seiger finally left the headmaster's house, he was he met uh, Johannes Samari, who was right. uh, a serial predator, and he said to him. So I heard you spent time with Inky and uh, cops last night. I'm, I'm glad you're getting to know them so well. Uh. So they had been talking, uh, at least according that that's John's perception, that they knew uh, about uh, one another. So to answer the question, it's been uh, a very draining and, and saddening experience to find out that some of the people who you admired and cherished right. and right. heroicized uh, have have uh, also had a very dark side to them. Now, isn't it possible that because of this scandal that some good and honest teachers who who may be inclined in generally to take a legitimate and truly innocent special interest in certain students that you know teachers do that you know they have favorite students and they and they have special relations with them that happens just all over the place. But in wake of these revelations, is it possible that they that that kind of uh, decent behavior might be uh, discouraged? They might be reluctant to uh, to enter into those special relations. And you know, no, that's that's a great question. I, I think you know, and part of look, I have four kids of myself, and and I, as I've said, I don't I don't want to live in a world where my kid falls and skins his knee, but the teacher can't hug them. I just don't want to live in that world. Right. You know, right. The question, you know, but if the pendulum sort of swings too much to that side, you know, you're living in this, uh, you know, in a very cold place. The question is, uh, in, in, and yeah, many, many innocent and, and wonderful teachers get swept and painted with this brush because of our uh, collective paranoia of what's going to happen to my kid. Uh, the, the, way we need to start to at least think about it is, you know, during at hiring practices, you know, in schools and camps, training other teachers in college to start to identify behaviors, training and more open talking with uh, parents and children about uh, crossing the line, again, without making them paranoid, right. yeah. helping pediatricians and psychiatrists identify in a better way how, you know, the, the signs of uh, sexual abuse. Uh, but the first thing is, we have to start openly talking about it, right? For up until right. about 10 years ago, we didn't realize the extent um, 
believe the statistics, is one out of every four girls mm. and one out of every six boys will be abused by the time they're 18 in America. Mm. And that's not just in um, educational settings, but also the family sure. uh, and other types of settings. But that's an astounding number. Mm. And that's an astounding number of, of adults walking around with psychic pain you know, that's costing us money in um, not only psychiatry, but, uh, you know, drugs, alcohol, prisons. Um, what, you know, one of the things that struck me after I wrote about this at the highest level of our society, if you will, or the highest socioeconomic level mm-hmm. of our society, was a friend of mine, um, he works with gang kids in Los Angeles. He tries to get them out of gangs by uh, exposing them to poetry and, and writing. Mm-hmm. And, and he, uh, after my piece broke in the Times in 2012, he said, you know, I'm so glad you wrote about that because it took me about 10 or 15 years to realize that every single one of my guys had been abused sexually. Mm-hmm. And it's not the type of thing you think about about gangs, but uh, it's at every level of society, every religion, every political persuasion, uh, it's not... It's not limited, and that, that's why we need to sort of, you know, come together and identify how to, uh, you know, how to, how to address it. And the whole system that has gone on for, for so long, and look, there are many cultures where men are still believing they can and should dominate and control women. And I actually, uh, oh gosh, many, many years ago, when I was in the New Hampshire State Senate, one of my colleagues an evangelical right-winger, described children as our most valuable possessions. May I ask your reaction to that statement? Uh, yeah, I think possession is uh, not, uh, certainly not how I am. I'm sorry. Uh, my own four kids, uh, and, and they tell me that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, no, it's, I think it's a pretty dangerous statement. I think, um, you know, uh, there, there are gifts, certainly. Yes. Um, mm. and uh, they're ours for uh, 18 years in the sense of uh, to raise them into good adults and, and great thriving adults. But possession it does not mean that you can do any, anything to... Right. And, I, and that's what we're dealing with here. We're talking about consent. Yes. Mm. Right? I think um, we're talking about... You know, a 15-year-old doesn't have the ability to consent to having sex with a 35-year-old. No. Right? Just mm. as a woman who's just been given quaaludes... Mm. Uh, and passed out doesn't have consent to say, uh, yes, you can uh, uh, have your, way, have with your me. way with me. Right. Yeah, it just, it can't be done. And, and that's, it seems part of the, the problem is that, uh, you know, children's rights. I mean, has it always been the case that people thought that children had rights? I don't think so, but I think what we're... No, that's a very new concept. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a new concept, right? I mean, the suffragette new into the... Uh, child labor laws right there, you know, we're talking about 100 years or so. Right. Um, but sadly, I mean, as you know, there's um, there are people all over the world uh, who are trafficking you know, in children, not just, you know, mm. to, you know, whether it's fishing slaves in Ghana or it's, you know, sex slaves uh, in every country in the world, practically, um, that, uh, as you said, it sort of goes back to the almighty dollar. And uh, it becomes an industry rather than a, uh, a moral issue. Mm, mm, mm. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here, our guest today is Amos Camille, author of the new book, Great is the Truth Secrecy, Scandal, and the Quest for Justice. 
at the Horace Mann School. That's part of the title. But I think it's about a quest for justice in a much, much bigger uh, uh, sense. Now, we've talked a little bit about the, the mediation that went on. Did the administrators uh, resolve that they may have had knowledge of misdeeds at the school, or did they never uh, acknowledge that there was, in fact, knowledge? How did, how did that ever get settled, or is it still sort of an open question? Well, it's an open question. I don't think they actually acknowledge it. I mean, they really wanted to make it about uh, money. How much right. is it to pay this person to go away? Right, mm, mm, and it wasn't really a lot of money, right? And because, uh, as I said, the statute of limitations they hid behind that, and they, they took the position that they didn't really need to give the victims anything. So not only were they playing hardball, but many of the people who were around at the time and, and students did come forward and, and report uh, many, and, and the the attorneys for the victims uh, actually proved that, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Horseman never really, you know, they didn't need to admit to it. It was just really about the money. Part of what's going on is that there are certain emeritus uh, board members uh, who are still around, still giving money to the school, who were there at the time. And this isn't just one or two. This is, you know, a group uh, of people that, if they were not aware, they should have been aware. Mm. Uh, and they're 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 still around, and people are afraid of them because these are very powerful people uh, in New York, uh, and by virtue of being powerful in New York and Wall Street, and they um, they control a lot of things. And so, if you're in business with somebody who's covered up something like this, it doesn't really um, doesn't really behoove you to turn you know to turn on them, right? So there's very interconnected reasons why people don't talk. Mm. And uh, sometimes it's just easier for it to go away. Sure. I think that. Yeah, that's the easiest thing I'm sure to do back when it was happening was to just, you know, keep your head down, say nothing, protect yourself, uh, and uh, pretend it wasn't there. And now, as you talk about the people with the power, money, power, who may be, you know, in positions of political power. How do you take them on? It's, you know, they have all the money in the world, and uh, they can buy justice in a way. Now, your, your best friend Paul, you talk about settlement checks, became angry with you when you suggested that he accept a settlement check for his troubles back at Horace Mann. What, what was that about? So Paul was one of the uh, fellows around the fire, uh, that original... Uh, when those original revelations came up, and uh, here's a guy I, I've shared my life with, I mean. Uh, our families are very friendly. Um, he, I mean, he's my best friend to this day. Uh, and and so as this was going on, um, it was something he would have been very supportive of me. He, just, he had a very ambivalent relationship to my digging into this. And as I said, I I, uh, I uncovered in the original piece uh, one of the predators was a guy by the name of Johannes Samari. And the night around the campfire, Paul had told a story. Uh, quote-unquote, amusing story about uh, how Samari had um, rented a room. Uh, they were going to go away for the uh, uh, for a concert and rented him a hotel room. When he got there, he only um, there was only one bed. And uh, the story at the time was that uh, the, he walked away and he walked in the rain for three or four hours and then uh, went home. And this is a story I carried around for, you know, 
20 years. So when my story broke and Samari was uh, a serial predator, I had asked Paul many times, are you sure that's all that happened? Does it, you know, are you okay? And he maintained that right before mediation. And he was involved with mediation because I had involved him uh, with it just because he's a, a compassionate, smart guy, and I thought he could be of help to uh, the other survivors. I knew something had happened, and you know, it was worth um, something. So I said, you know, are you worried about mediation? And I, I made a flip comment. And I said something along, oh, you tell your little story and, uh, you know, get, get your check and you know, get out of there. And he blew up. What the, you know, what do you know what happened to me? How dare you? All these other people get compassion. And he just sort of like peeled off into the night. Mm. And the next night I came back over to my house and said, you have to tell me, you have something you got to tell me. And he said, you know, you didn't even bother asking. I said, I did ask you. I asked you three times if anything happened to you. And he said, well, then I lied. Mm. And he burst into tears. I was crying, and we're in my kitchen. I'm hugging him. I said, I can't believe you haven't told me. And as he's sort of, you know, weeping in my arms, I'm saying, does your wife know? He said, I, I wasn't even planning on telling you. And, and I included that in the book because I wanted to give people a sense of how deep the shame is. Right? This happened to him when he was 15, 16 years old. Hadn't talked to anybody. Just a, a beautiful guy. Uh, people tell them his their deepest, darkest secrets. And mm. he, he never shared this with anybody. And hmm. if he couldn't tell me, I was just uh, literally my best friend in the world. I just can only imagine the hundreds of millions of people out there that are share or harboring secrets about shame that isn't really even theirs. It's it's shame that should go on on the people who did this to them. Certainly Absolutely. not theirs to carry around. Absolutely. It wasn't their policy that put this into place. It wasn't them covering it up. But you're right. Obviously, you're right. I mean, the, carrying around that shame and taking it internally, personally, because there there aren't many outlets for that. There's not a lot of uh, confirmation that you can say this stuff, whereas there is confirmation for the power structure staying in place. Well, they're big, they're strong, like the Catholic Church. You know, how can you dare attempt to, you know, tilt at that windmill. You know, it's it's really hard. And and you have uh, talked uh, to a lot of uh, people, your former classmates through the years, and uh, people who have been emotionally affected uh, by what happened to them. Uh, you've had some conversations that lasted well into into the night. What, what did you learn about the you know, effects of sexual abuse over a long period of time and, and people's lives in general. What have you learned from that, from acting as kind of a counselor to these people? Right. I mean, I, I think I was learning on the job. I think um, mm. one of the things that was so stunning and, and, and sort of uh, took a huge emotional toll on me was the, the depths of um, the deep effect that this had so many years later. You know, whether it be alcoholism or drugs, uh, or overeating, uh, you know, the, the or divorce, or str- you know, couldn't hold down jobs. It was the uh, the uh, one of the survivors said something to me the other day that I thought was uh, an interesting metaphor. He said, "You know, your all your signals get crossed up. You know, you 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 stop at green lights and you go at red ones." And 
that was part of my learning process and uh, to see you know, even even when people were holding down great jobs right I mean some some people managed to you know be highly functional right there's you know very very successful professionals uh, also heroin addicts at the mm. same time mm-hmm. um, that's a very real case in the Harsh man uh, story wow. um, so the the um, decay you know, and again, it's not across the board, right? Because you have to remember, some people were sort of glance, you know, had a glancing touch mm-hmm. one time, mm-hmm. and other people were, you know, raped four hundred times. Mm. So, uh, and also, sort of, you get into personal resilience and how can how one person might, you know, experience the same thing and be fine or quote unquote fine. Another person, you know, can't get out of their bed for forty years. Right, and. That's a difficult thing to account for. It's not necessarily a straight line. But mm-hmm. Across the board, I have seen the uh, the damage uh, this has done uh, to many, many men and women. And it, you know, children's power, children's rights—that the power of children to speak up—they're not always believed. I mean, there was that horrible case back in the 80s, the McMartin Preschool in California, where, you know, it was basically a witch hunt, and the kids, as it turns out, had kind of made it all up. So I wonder what, you know, with this kind of thing, the the reluctance of children victims to, to speak up in the face of intimidation and the lack of a sense of legitimacy, that's a, a quite a challenge, I would think, that still goes on. As you mentioned, you know, it's really not black and white. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, let's think about it, right? So you're a 14-year-old, you know, boy or girl, mm-hmm. and something like this happens to you. You know, even today, yep. you're not going to get a lot of street cred, you know, in the lunchroom saying that, you know, <laughs> Mr. Smith had sex with you, right? Who are you going to tell that to, really? You know, I know my own teenagers, you know, really comfortable talking about a lot of things, not just sex, <laughs> right? And so... um it's a very complex thing, and so even when people do sort of come out and say something, um, they're often doubted. All they need to be doubted one time, and then that that memory goes into a file, and mm. you know never to be talked about again for decades. Um, I think I, I'd like to think we, we live in a different uh, era in that sense, uh, where you know the internet and there's instantaneous communication. Uh, but I'm not sure. I mean, there's plenty of um, predatory behavior out there that uh, yes. still goes on. Um, but I guess it's just having an open dialogue with your kids um, and, and you know, pray that nothing happens to them. And if it does, they, they have the wherewithal to tell you, and you're going to be, and they'll be believed. Yes. And sometimes kids can exaggerate, no doubt about that. You have teenagers, I have teenagers, and I know. They can't exaggerate, but, uh, you know, something like this, kids and adults need to know the truth is really important. And I wonder about, you know, there's a lot of private schools, sort of in a, a, a British model, I think, uh, that that their modus operandi is strict authoritarianism. I, I wonder if, if this problem of which you write is more... I would think it would be more prevalent in, in private schools where there is that, you know, tradition of strict authoritarianism and, and less so in public schools, you think? It's, I mean, I would, I would like to think that, but it's not true. Um, it's, you know, I think 
it's a perfect breeding ground, and I think it also, you know, in the case of Horace Mann, definitely why so many predators could con- congregate on one pretty tiny campus. There was only 600 students at a time. Uh, but, you know, it was, it was authoritarian. It, w- it was a different era in the sense that, you know, uh, institutions back then could control their story in a better way, right? And it wasn't until... Um, the the internet where people you know, all of a sudden everybody said yeah this happened to me this happened to me that people realized they were not you know alone right uh, but having said that no this this happens in camps this happens in public schools this happens in prisons mm-hmm. um, it happens anywhere where there's authority yes um, and kids and listen pre- sexual predators of kids are smart they go where uh, they're going to be most successful schools. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're not, you know, and just like if you want to make a lot of money, you, you go to Wall Street. <laughs> they they uh, surround themselves, they put themselves in positions to be around children. Mm-hmm. That's where the hiring practices come in. Yeah. That's where, um, you know, identifying behaviors comes in. And people have to uh, take this seriously. It has to be very, very <laughs> high up in the, in the list of credentials for hiring or not hiring. And just thinking about, uh, you know, adult power over children recently, you've probably seen this incident that went viral on social media where a police officer was in a school and there's more and more police officers in schools. And this police officer uh, beat and abused a misbehaving student. Now, the kid was misbehaving, but the officer was way out of line. The, the transformation of disciplinary problems into criminal violations seems to me has often resulted in tragic, crazy results. But again, submission to absolute authority is is required, and police are absolute authority. I haven't seen signs that we are at last addressing this problem. Have you? I, I hate to be uh, pessimistic, but I'm not seeing it. No, I, I don't really see it. I think, um, you know, increasingly, um, uh, I, you know, I, I think the police are being called in to, um, to police things that are, that are right. uh, you know, bigger societal problems that they have the wherewithal to, uh, to address, right? I mean, um, but let's start with the question, well, what do we need policemen in, in schools for? Yeah, let's really, start there. Really? Right. Uh, what message and, does that uh, give? What? And what message yeah. does that give? Yeah, exactly. What message does that give? And um, right, and so you know, it's that old expression. You know, if the only if the only tool in your uh, toolbox is a hammer, everything's going to look like right. You know, the solution is going to look like a hammer, right? So yeah. uh, there, there. You know, these are complex questions. I think. Um, you know, I, I I don't know that uh, uh, we're, we're, we've addressed them. I think this whole question of you know standing up to authority, right? The whole Milgram. Stanley Milgram um, uh, uh, experiments of the uh, late fifties of like you know obedience to authority, you know still stand today. And I think you have, and again, I think part of it is technology. It's not that this stuff wasn't always going on, but all, all of a sudden there's a kid with an iPhone, and they're showing you what's going on in their classroom on their streets, and all of a sudden we're waking up and saying, "Whoa, yeah, Houston, we have a problem." Yeah. Well, maybe the the awareness of I mean, like just the abuse by police in general of of unarmed black people. Who knows how long it's been going on? As a white person, I really don't. But now that there are these uh, iPhones everywhere, we can 
you know, it slaps us in the face like you cannot miss it. You can't, exactly. Right, right. So it's being reported in a different way. Right. But, you know, it's certainly not. It doesn't seem like it's coming as a huge surprise to members of the African-American community. No. They're like, no, yeah, sure. welcome to the party. You know, <laughs> hello. You know, it's been going on forever. Yeah. But, uh, you know, now it's now we need to address it. And I think, uh, you know, in that sense, uh, the technology is... is has uh, pushed the conversation forward. Yeah, it's helping, I think. And I like the idea very much of requiring police to record everything. And, you know, the, the title of this show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking about authority and authoritarianism here and, you know, assuming the legitimacy of authority. Authority requires submission, knowing your place. I wonder how this prepares kids to be fully participating citizens, as Thomas Jefferson uh, envisioned, where, you know, in a democracy, you participate in this. We, I guess, you know, we have to have police, but w- this question of, of authority and submission, what are your thoughts on that? Well, look, I think, you know, one of the things you, know, you mentioned in the opening, you know, that I'm not a, I'm, uh, I'm also an investigative journalist, but it wasn't where I began. I began as a playwright and a screenwriter. But I saw something that was wrong, and I said, uh, you know, I, I need to investigate this. And I had a, a unique access because I, had, I went to the school. People would talk to me. And I got headmasters to talk to me. I got students to talk to me. And I became almost like a citizen journalist. Yes, ultimately it became uh, a, a front-page piece in the New York Times magazine. But... I'm not on the staff of the Times, right? And so I think that, you know, there's something about once I had sort of heard the stories, as I said earlier, it became, it became a mission, a, a duty. Um, and I think that a free press, you know, in my case, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, thank, you know, thankfully we still have that, but, you know, because mm-hmm. of uh, monetary Mm-hmm. Uh, considerations, it's becoming harder and harder. Absolutely. On the other hand, you know, as we were saying before, we everybody can put up a blog, everybody could put up a um, right. a post nowadays, and if you see something, it's not just, you know, it's nice to say something. I agree with you. I think it's your duty to say something. It ultimately makes this a better place to live and a yep. better democracy. And it does, and I wonder, just a couple questions, which is worse, the violations themselves or the culture of complicity? That's a, um, <laughs> I think that's about, we need another hour for that one. Yeah, true. Uh, no, it's, uh, that's a tough one, I think. Um, well, we need to. Plenty of uh, villains to go around, I think. Uh, certainly, in, in the case of Horace Mann, I'll talk about it in the book, there's definitely, you know, a, a certain, you know, place for, uh, for the, the perpetrators, but. The book does not deal only with the past. The, the book deals with very much with the present and, and the complicity of the, the present administration of the school trying to say that everything was in the past. And while the acts were, the way that they treated the survivors who came forward and continue to mm. is not in the past. That's very much in the present, and that's complicity. That's complicity, and that is far from acceptable. Tell us about the restorative justice movement and the idea of real justice. You know, obviously, you can't make people completely whole again, but what is this restorative justice movement? So the restorative justice movement is basically takes its... Uh, the premise is, you know, we can't... It's to, to try to uh, legislate 
or to go to court and say, okay, this is guilty, uh, this one's guilty, and this one's innocent, you know, that that doesn't actually lead to healing or necessarily justice, right? As I said before in the Horace Mann case, how much money can you possibly get that would overcome a lifetime, decades of pain having been sexually abused? So the restorative justice community will say, how outside the courtroom, right? The, the most famous cases are in um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in uh, South Africa, right, right. where terrible things were uh, perpetrated on uh, in black South Africans by white South Africans, yes, and they got together and uh, an open an ongoing series of dialogues about the pain that they suffered, both by um, the people who were doing it and the people who were done too. The problem and the critique of the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions were, you know, they, some people felt that it let off uh, the perpetrators too easily. Like, okay, mm-hmm. you want to reconcile, but we have truth. Right. In the case of Horace Mann, we don't even have the truth. Any truth we have is because of, uh, you know, uh, independent investigations that were funded by the alumni or, or um, articles in, in major publications like the New Yorker right. Times. Right. So there's a lot of work to do. A lot of work. There's to a do. lot of work to do. Well, very, very important uh, book, Great is the Truth, Secrecy, Scandal, and the Quest for Justice at the Horace Mann School. Our guest has been its author, Amos Camille. The publisher is Farrar, uh, Strauss, and Giraud out of New York. Thank you so much for being with us and for the important work that you're doing. I appreciate it. Thank you. the ocean Leaving just a memory A snapshot in the family album Just a break in the wall